As we age, we all start to wonder, why are we here? What is this all about? Well, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on this program, we try to answer that question by introducing you to some people who have figured it out in their own lives. And the best part about it is what they have to say is something they believe you can do, too. They are people who have moved forward in life but have made it their purpose to give back. And we're going to talk about making a difference in the lives of others. You know, Bill, you raise a good question. What is it all about? You know, without sounding too shallow, I think it's all about having a good time, being a good person, and making a difference. And those are the stories we love to share. And you're about to meet somebody who knew what she wanted to do. She just had no idea how she should do it. She wanted to empower women to dare to be great, to have adventures, to live lives of purpose, and and even to overcome grief. And she's done just that by using her gifts as an artist to create images that inspire others. You will be inspired by Susie Toronto. And then, instead of art, we've got someone who's done the same thing through storytelling, the top historical documentarian of our generation, You know him. The great Ken Burns is going to join us to talk about leaving a legacy of his very own. But first, we've got a man who made a name for himself in the restaurant business and how. He's earned a reputation for helping others along the way. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. It's time to start growing bolder. We begin today with a conversation between two responsible, caring, socially conscious entrepreneurs, and I'm talking about Mark and a guy named John Rivers. John started out in his garage. It's one of those stories, and he ended up creating the most successful barbecue restaurant chain in Florida. But there's so much more to him than that, and here's Mark. Can we start with the elevator speech, uh, if you will, of what Four Roots is about? What's the mission? What are you trying to accomplish? You know, it's funny, Mark. It's it's got a, a grandiose plan of, you know, teaching farmers how to farm sustainably, to impacting the world from that perspective, from, you know, using food as part of the medical cycle and treating patients, to uh, creating jobs in agriculture, to exposing uh, young minds to, you know, potential in technology and farming, to promoting urban gardening. But at the end of the day. And the thing I keep reminding my team is, you know what, if little Jimmy or little Sally who lives downtown for the first time that we can teach them that food comes from the ground, then we win. And we keep that as our guiding light. And because once people start to understand and gain an appreciation for the relationship, that is so vital that we're supposed to have that harmony with the planet. Once they understand that, I think so many things can grow from it. Just an appreciation for how we treat the ground, to to the importance of growing, to quite honestly, even to the food that we put in our body. If we look at an apple in a different way than a bag of Doritos, then we've won. So at its core, for you, it's an educational mission. 100%. We changed the name. It used to be, be Four Roots Farm. And the more we started digging into it, it says, you know, we're not... We're going to farm on it, but the it is actually a campus because we're teaching. We're teaching not just students, but we're also teaching parents and community. 
and we're teaching farmers and we're teaching healthcare providers. The thing that we learned in the process, little Jimmy, he might not understand where tomatoes are co that come from the ground, but guess what? We're a generation behind. Little Jimmy's parents don't understand that tomatoes come from the ground too. And that revelation changed our perspective and our approach. It's no longer going to schools. It's no longer the science center. We've got to bring parents. We've got to bring the community in and teach them and educate them and inspire them about the importance of where their food comes from and the food that they're putting in their body. I'm sure there are many problems that bug you, John, at every step of the process in terms of food culture, the raising, the distribution, the waste and everything. Well, what do you think is the biggest problem in, in the entire food chain today or is there one that you can identify? Hence the issue why it's not getting fixed. It's called a broken food system. And in that system, if you would imagine around a table, you're going to put everyone that is involved in getting food into the ground, out of the ground, and onto our plates, okay? You have the seed producer, the fertilized producer, the actual grower, the harvester, the wholesale distribution company in between, the wholesale company who gets it to the restaurants, the restaurateur, the chef, the retailer, the publics of the world, the teachers that are involved in it, the physicians that are involved in it. Have you ever seen that table populated with all those people sitting down at one time and working together? That's the issue. You have so many great organizations that'll hit one area, um, food banks, okay? They do a great job. They're handing out food, but is it changing the system? Uh, agriculture education programs, they're doing a great job, but is it changing the system? For the folk, broken food system to be fixed, it's not a one solution answer. It's a collaboration of putting all those pieces together. The thing that gets, got me the most and my wife, Monica, is when we take a look on one hand, we've got 20% of our students at OCPS living in food insecurity. And on the other hand, we've got nearly a billion pounds of produce going to waste in the fields every year just in the state of Florida. There is enough food that is wasted to feed not just Orange County, but all of the missed meals in the state. And it, so... We don't, we don't have a problem of a shortage of food. <laughs> That's not the country's problem. We have an issue with connecting that, that grower and where it's grown from to the end user. And how do we take out pieces and steps along the way? Our produce today that we eat, on average in the United States, has traveled 1,872 miles to get to our plate. Now, if I'm living uh, in the middle of uh, nowhere, okay, uh, or where it snows all the time, you know, you might, okay, well, we have to bring it in, right? But we're not. You know, most of the U.S. can produce and grow food almost, almost a major part of the seasons. And here in Florida, we've got everything that we need to be producing for ourselves. Yet in the country, over 51% of our overall fruits and vegetables are imported from other countries. 
that 1,800 miles uh, is costly in, in many ways, uh, you know, the, the costly to the planet in terms of uh, the fuel that it required to get here. But I don't know this, but I'm guessing that as it makes the journey, it is forever being degraded in terms of nutritional value, taste, and everything else. Is that right? Oh, 100%. you ever been to Europe or other countries and you taste the tomato? Right. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, what's so special about it? I'll tell you what's special. It was probably picked a day or two before. It was probably grown right out back. And you know what? They probably didn't use a lot of fertilizers on top of that. Every moment that goes by that a fruit or vegetable is taken out of its natural state of growth in the ground and in healthy soil, just like us, we begin to degrade. So those moments, um, average produce or average lettuce today, 92% of it comes from California. So everybody on the East Coast, guess what? You're eating a piece of lettuce that could be a week plus old. And not only the, the loss of nutrients and the loss of flavor, but think about the, the fossil impact that it's made in moving all the way over here today. And then you put on top of that, you think about it, how many states have farmers in it? Right? At the height of farming, we were well over 2 million independent farms in the United States. For the first time, right, right now, on average, in the United States, 330 farmers are closing or losing their properties every single week on average. Remember, we are approaching the number 2 million mark for the first time post-Civil War era. We have to stop that. We have to preserve what we absolutely need for our bodies to be healthy. We can't have a healthy body if we're living in an unhealthy environment. And that's exactly what we are creating from the amount of transportation that we're doing to the amount of burn that we're doing to just healthy soil today. If I took a handful of soil, healthy soil, there are more microorganisms in that one handful of soil than all human population from the beginning of time. It's incredibly powerful. Those microbiome that live in that soil producing all of the nutrients that are necessary for plants to grow are the same it's feeding the same bacteria in our body that we need to grow matter of fact our body today is composed of 90% bacterium okay we're only 10% pure human <laughs> which tells me you think about that connection we have with nature okay we have the same dependency on those microbiomes producing that bacteria that the plants do. And if we don't maintain a healthy balance with nature and with soil, the way we're living is undermining the very ecosystem that we depend on as a human race. He is interesting, innovative, and inspiring restaurateur John Rivers, serving up a big dish of sustainability that he hopes will impact companies everywhere. Now, in just a minute, we'll continue the conversation and learn why he believes the key to health and well-being starts in your own backyard. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... 
Florida Blue Medicare. Turning 64 is a time to celebrate as new adventures and opportunities await. And 64 is also a time to think about Medicare. Growing Boulder created a guide that helps explain it all. Available for free at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder, talking with John Rivers, a successful restaurateur, founder of the Four Rivers chain, and also an environmentalist, an innovator, and a leader. Let's get back to Mark's interview as they move into the importance of focusing on the future, making a meaningful difference, and dreaming as big as possible. You mentioned the insecurity and food going to waste, and I do know that the pandemic presented a challenge, but also an opportunity for you guys. You were out there in the fields. Um, I guess harvesting might be the right word, (laughs) harvesting food that would go to waste in order to uh, create this Feed the Need Florida initiative. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, when, When the pandemic hit in 2020 in March, our business enterprise side shut down literally overnight. We lost 50% of our business. All of our catering commissaries, all of our trucks, everything was, was dark. We had to turn them all off. And instead of sitting there recognizing that we're in trouble as a, an organization, we went to work. We went to work to fix the business, but we also went to work recognizing there's other people out there that need help. Now, one of our top areas of focus is youth, and it's youth education and youth health. So we made a phone call, and we recognized that these students, about 20%, who depend on the food that they get every day at school, are no longer going to school to get that. You know, it's just in the back of my head. You know, I thought there may be some of them out there that aren't going to have access to the student meal programs that the counties are providing. And sure enough, it was a phone call into the superintendent on, a say, a Monday where, no, I think we've got 50 sites that are activating in Orange County. We've got it pretty well covered to no more than two or three days later. Hey, uh, John, if that offer still holds, we've got uh, a number of students that live in the homeless center. We also got a, a big number of students that live in an apartment complex that Her parents are working. They're there by themselves all day. They don't have transportation to get the meals. And we said, no worries. We'll go to work. We had to to call on some favors from Tallahassee to get approved to do the student meal programs. But that's exactly what we did. And what, what we ended up doing was going from those two locations that first week to less than four weeks later, we were servicing 46 different locations in six counties across the state serving not only the students who needed the meals, but we also recognized when their families came through, they needed food as well. Now, the beauty about the program, this is one of the things I I get most giddy about, is that we created a closed-loop system. I don't know if you remember seeing some of the articles about the amount of produce that was being wasted and just going to waste because restaurants stopped buying, the whole industry did. So all these poor farmers, they were stuck with millions and millions of pounds of produce. So you call it uh, harvesting, but we call it rescuing. We had trucks going out all over the state, finding that produce. And, and if the farmer 
could give it to us, great. But if they needed some a little bit of money to harvest it, we would fund that for them. So we were taking produce that was otherwise going to go to waste. We were bringing it to Central Florida. We ended up recreating 322 jobs of people to take that produce and to turn it into meals and then go out to those 46 sites all over the state and feed people on a weekly basis. Um, we called it Feed the Need, and it's still going on today. And we are now approaching 1.7 million meals that we have distributed uh, in just a little over a year all over the state, but mostly now in in Central Florida. I had a period in my life uh, when I lived in food insecurity, and I know what some of those families are going through. And as I look back, even though it was an incredibly challenging time, it it gave me the understanding and the compassion of now that God's put me in a position to do something, serves as the motivation to do it without even thinking twice about it. Because I know the emotional plight and physical plight that those people are going through when they're going through that. And when they say it could be any one of us, it's the truth. And it's just, you know, at Every one of us needs help at some point in our life, whether it's in the future or whether in the past, whether we remember it or block it out. You know, we get by because we're a community. And in a community, you know, it's based on relationships and harmony. And the more that we can lift up those who need it the most in our community, the whole community itself betters. And some people are in positions to, to do more some people are in positions to do a little, but they're all important. There's no difference between the impact that anybody can make in somebody's life. I love the talk about community because, you know, I started saying that community is immunity. It, it is the health and well-being vaccine in, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's all these studies about the importance of social interaction and that low social interaction, uh, you know, as we age is critically uh, you know, harmful to our health and that it's, we, we do need one another. I mean, is, is that kind of at the heart of what you're doing is just being a good member of your community? If, if you have a chance to be an example, you know, do it. Even if it's, it's, if it's inspiring and influencing a small group or even one other person, because you never know what that one other person they're going to go out and do and who they're going to inspire. And community is... To me, it's, 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 it's harmonious with relationships. And you think about any relationship you've ever been in, it has to be two-sided. What if that was the purpose of you getting that fortune to begin with? And if you chose not to do anything with it, think of how many people who were supposed to be helped never actually got that from you. And it's not always money. You know, some of the greatest lessons that I've learned in my life is the impact you can make in people's lives just by your words just by your, your encouragement that you give them or the time that you pour into them. And uh, that happens, that opportunity happens not only every day, but for every single person that you meet. I've, got, I've had a challenge that I, I write down and I, and I keep it in front of me often. It's, um, can I, to everybody that I meet today, can I add to their life? Can I lift their spirits in one way or another? It doesn't mean be disingenuous, but be sincere and, and truly compassionate for them, because we never know what people are going through. 
put a big check mark next to my name when you, <laughs> when you sit down tonight uh, and, and evaluate that. You mentioned a couple of times if you can help a single person do so. Can you talk a little bit about your, your heart for mentoring? Mentoring is, is, is a joy because you know, we, we all learn lessons in our lives. And I, I look back on mine and you know, the people who poured into me at the time that I was at my lowest point had the greatest impact. And they didn't pour into me resources, dollars, anything like that. They poured into me encouragement and confidence. And they got me through things just by sharing the little bit of knowledge of that they had and what it was that I needed most in my life. You know, I think one of our greatest undervalued but highest worth assets we have in our life is time. And because it's finite. We only have a certain amount of it. And when we choose to share that time with somebody else in a sincere way and you're present with them, you know, I, I don't think there's many other ways to, to pour and to honor people than that particular step. And then there's a, a number of young restaurant aspiring people who have sat in my office and just share that time with them and see where they're at in my, their life. And every one of them that we do, it reminds me of when I sat in somebody else's office and they helped me get through some of those same questions. And had they not, I wouldn't be in the position that I am today. I could make a list myself after talking to you, but, but what do you think is most responsible for your success? Oh my goodness. Um, it, it, by far, it's the, my team. You know, it's the people around me. I, I just have an idea. And I use that idea and I, and I couple that with um, some passion and, and telling that idea and inspiring others. But I'm not running the restaurants right now. I'm not running the businesses. It's that team that carries it forward. And I wouldn't be here without them. And I wouldn't be here with, you know, without the blessings that I've got in my life from you know, a desire and a passion from cooking from ever since I was a young child, or I keep going back to it. The challenges that I had in my life, I wouldn't be doing the things that I had today if I didn't have those. Who was it? Uh, Kierkegaard, uh, 17th century theologian. He says, you live your life moving forward, but you understand your life looking back. And when you're in the thick of those challenges, which is just a part of life, I've learned to ask a question instead of why is this happening to me? Ask a question, what are you trying to teach me in this? And when I approach it like that, every one of those challenges not only makes you stronger, but it prepares you for the next bigger one that you're going to face. Since I've got you here, I'm often bothered that I can't find a couple ears of organic corn and I just immediately default to I get picked <laughs> off at, at DuPont. And I don't know whether that's, whether that's true or not. Is, is, is that an issue? Well, there's, you know, to, to get the industry today to move away from traditional big ag farming is not going to happen overnight. And, and quite honestly, when we vilify the farmer, without truly understanding what they go through and the full story, you know, it's not going to solve the problem. The approach that we have taken with it, one, our farmers, our U.S. farmers are an essential part of our health personally and of our country. 
And we've got to find a way to support them, okay? Help them educate if there's a if there's a more regenerative, sustainable way of farming. If I shoot them down, they're never going to listen to me. But if I embrace them and walk them along the path, or potentially even be uh, a vehicle to help them get the necessary funding that will help them make that conversion. I've not met a farmer yet, and we're filming a documentary of farmers all over the state today. I've not met one that is not absolutely passionate and in love with their land and nature, and quite honestly, all of them, their maker, every single one of them. They have families that are behind them, that the amount of pressure that they have to, to produce yields, they've gone down this path sometimes generations before they even stepped into it. And our job is, well, if we can help become an inspiration for them or show them a different way or perhaps even use, you know, we're so fortunate to have restaurants and hospitals behind us. Can we use our buying power to say, well, if you were to plan it this way, we would actually pay for it and pay a premium for it. Change starts with inspiration and education. Okay? And if I can educate them on the way how to do it and then inspire them, be it the improvement to the land, the improvement to the, our bodies, or the improvement to their business. You know, that's how we'll carry them along. We have to be very, very careful. We have to protect our farmers. We, we need them for our, our health and for our country. I could go forever, but I don't want to overstay our welcome. So let, let, let me wrap this one up with, um, and, I, and I know you've touched on this, John, in many different ways, but, but, but if there's a takeaway if there's a moral to the story uh, that, that, that you're telling, to life in general, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think people should know about life that you have learned? I, I do believe that every life has a purpose, that every single one of us was created for a specific reason. And each and every one of us are given skills in the wherewithal to do that purpose that doesn't mean automatically that we have the courage to step into it. The thing I have learned is when that opportunity presents itself is to say yes. Don't have to know all the details. Don't know how it's you don't have to know how it's going to work out. And quite honestly, I think that's where the blessing lies. Had we or would we know the challenges we would face in order to accomplish that? Most of us, including myself, would have probably cowered and never taken that first step. That's where the blessing lies. Just say yes. I lied. Last question. As you you look ahead from where you sit now, are you optimistic about aging about uh, that you said you love this season of your life uh, do you feel good about growing older 100% um, and, and, and so much of that reason is uh, a peace that comes with this season in our life when it's no longer about fame or title or money it's truly about purpose and family you know those are good things to focus on in life What a great conversation between Mark Middleton and restaurateur John Rivers proving that true leadership, man, it's something to behold. And when you're a leader in your own community, that's when the magic can truly happen. 
And if you want a great conversation, we've got another one coming up from the Civil War to baseball to Prohibition to Muhammad Ali. Nobody makes documentaries like Ken Burns. He is one of the greatest historical storytellers of our time, and he's right here next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Are you doing as much, seeing as many people in contact with those you care about as much as you should be? If you said no, you're far from alone. In a survey of people over 65, one of the most common issues we all face is loneliness. It's not just a problem for your mental state. Loneliness can affect your health in a very serious way. The National Center for Biotechnology found that older adults who are lonely experience a decline in their mental sharpness and physical well-being. Ever feel like you're being left out of a social situation, cut off from family, forgotten about by friends? Well, these feelings actually lead to an increase in inflammation in your body and the hormones that cause stress. You know what that does. It can increase your risk of heart disease, arthritis, diabetes, and even dementia. The problem is, what are you supposed to do about it? Reach out more? Push yourself on people? Well, loneliness is not easy to remedy. It turns out that some of the most effective ways to bring people back together come from the use of technology. And the easiest way is texting. It's a great way to break the ice, to gently let people know you're thinking of them, that you miss them, and that you'd love to catch up when they get a chance. You should get some response, and you can go from there to a phone call or even a video call. Video adds a lot. Use your smartphone or tablet. All it takes are free apps like FaceTime, Skype, and Google Hangouts to connect. Grandkids can show you their rooms and their latest artwork. Your kids can ask advice on whatever needs to be fixed. It's an easy, unobtrusive way to ease back into being part of each other's lives. Take the plunge into social media. Maybe your grandkids will help you start your own Facebook and Instagram page so you can follow each other. You'll be surprised by how many old high school and college friends you'll be able to catch up with if you choose to. You can connect with new people, too. Look for groups to join on Facebook. There's something for just about every topic, and that includes health-related issues, too. Also, you can check out all the possibilities and subjects that interest you on meetup.com. The point is, don't let distance, whether it's geographical or personal, keep you from having the relationships you need. Take advantage of technology. You'll be glad you did. And if you're struggling with loneliness, by all means, reach out for help. More information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. Huge guest right now, someone who's given us quite a gift 
He's allowed us to see some of the most interesting and influential people, pastimes and events that we're all familiar with, with an entirely fresh set of eyes and a different perspective. He's helped us appreciate and understand our history, our heroes, our legends in in a deep and personal way. 14 Emmys, three Peabody's, and a Lifetime Achievement Award. Tell you, he does it pretty well, too. And it's great to be joined by the legend himself. Yeah, Ken Burns. Ken, how you doing these days? I'm doing great. You know, we just released our film on Muhammad Ali, and it's just received great notices, and we've gotten extraordinary feedback about it, so we're really quite happy. And the we is not a Royal We, it's co-directed by my daughter Sarah Burns and her husband David McMahon. We conspired together to do the Central Park Five film and a recent biography on Jackie Robinson. Is there anything, Ken, better in life than getting to the point where you can work with your own daughter, an intergenerational connection, and create something that you're so proud of? <laughs> There's nothing. Thanks for thanks for getting it. I was. I, I kind of buried the lead. It's the best thing. I remember when this was a little girl crawling under the table of the editing room in, the, in our living room, and we were trying to figure out how to make documentary films in the very beginning with the book, with the Shaker film and the Huey Long film, our second and third film. And uh, here she is growing up, and as she puts it, the family business, but never thinking she'd be there, and me not pushing, and then she's here. And Ken, it's a family business where I'm sure when you oh it it from from this side it looks like oh well, that's a no brainer. But when you were starting, I'm sure your friend said, "Ken, documentaries. Nobody watches documentaries." For forty two years ago, this summer, last month, I moved from New York City to the house that I'm living in now in this tiny town in rural New Hampshire, and and outside of that tiny town and I, a village, really, and I just assumed that doing films on PBS, documentary films on PBS in American history, I was taking a vow of anonymity and poverty. Forty-two years later, I'm still here, have made all the films from here, and uh, not changed the house, uh, and have sort of stayed within myself and tried to share with the world these glorious topics. I think if you tell a good story, people are going to respond. You know, the the novelist Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So I've just been trying over the last, you know, it's actually closer to 50 years from when I started my first film on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I've just been trying to learn to be a dedicated student on how you tell a good story and then share it with everybody. People say, what's your audience? I go, everybody. You know, it's, it's, I mean, probably eighth grade and up. Um, you know, that's, that's who you want to meet. That's public uh, television's mandate. We're responsible to try to touch everybody. I leave my politics at the door, and we tell complicated stories that we hope invite in people because they're not hearing an argument. They're just hearing a good story. And Ken, how cool that listening to you now, you sound, you sound like you're just starting out. And I'm sure your da- you and your daughter talk about this, too. Do you think about the fact you're are you 68 now? I am 68 now, and I am greedy. I'm, I've got more projects going on than I've ever had. I have eight projects going on, four different producing teams. Sarah and Dave are just one, and we have two other projects lined up over the next several years in that producing thing and we've got 
a film that just finished on one line that is on Benjamin Franklin and moving on to a big history of the American Revolution, another line which is doing the U.S. and the Holocaust and then is moving on to LBJ and the Great Society, and yet a fourth line is doing a history of the Buffalo. I mean, everything is going because I am, you know, as I get older, I know that if I had a, a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of topics in American history. And so I've become pretty greedy for the thing that makes me enthusiastic, as, as enthusiastic as I was when I was working on my first film, if not more, because I was so terrified back then, I probably missed a lot of the enthusiasm. Um, I'm, I'm less terrified. It's always good to be a little bit terrified when you take off a subject as important as Muhammad Ali, but I'm able to celebrate the stories of us, not just the stories of the U.S., but the lowercase two-letter plural pronouns and all of the intimacy of us and all of the majesty, the complexity, the contradiction, and the controversy of the U.S. And it's a privileged space that I've been able to occupy to tell the stories. And, you know, I was finishing up country music a couple of years ago, and I realized, and I tell my audiences pre-COVID, you know, I just say the thing about us in the U.S., I said, and the thing that I've learned working on country music is that there's only us. There's no them. And if anybody tells you there's a them, run away. And I think in some ways that's the, the spirit of public broadcasting, both NPR and, and, and PBS, that we're attempting to try to reflect the country in all its diversity and uniqueness and to, you know, hold its feet to the fire when it makes mistakes, but also celebrate the things that it does well. Ken, Ken you're, you're amazing. First of all, you, you missed the memo. You're, you're supposed to be winding down at 65, you know, and sitting in that chair watching Matlock on TV and, and thinking about all the things that you did, not looking forward. And, and, and number two, you are maybe, maybe you are your greatest story. Maybe you taking a risk, doing something no one's ever done before, finding a way to bring history to life in a way that the school books and the teachers just were never able to do. Can I? And at the age of 68, looking forward to doing more and more and more, Ken, you may be the greatest story you've ever told. Well, I, I doubt that, Bill. You know, but we are booked out for the rest of this decade as with projects that I just cannot wait to get to. Um, I, I don't think that, that my story is, is material in a way, but it is indicative of an American striving, that it is possible out of tragedy, out of humble beginnings, out of sets of circumstances that many of us are delivered some lemons and we learn how to make lemonade. And I think in my case, I feel so fortunate that I was able to understand pretty early on uh, what I wanted to do and, and filmmaking and that I want it to be documentary, and that I wanted it to be an American history, and that all of the, the, the things lined up. And uh, I've been very fortunate. So, it's, you know, people always ask, how come you worked for 10 and a half years on Vietnam? Weren't you sick of it? And I go, no, it's really bittersweet to leave it. Same with this, seven years on Muhammad Ali, and, I, you know, uh, this is it. This is the last couple of days where I'm going to be talking about it and evangelizing for it. It's very sad. And while I'm looking forward to re-diving back into all the other projects that we have going in various stages of undress, uh, you know, it's still, it's, you know, Muhammad Ali bo- belongs to you now. And, uh, and that, you know, uh, it's, it's great and exciting to share it and give it away, but it's also 
you know, I've really enjoyed spending time with this extraordinary human being. And, and what does it say also, Ken, that at, at 68, you can look forward to spending years doing more at a life stage where a generation or two ago, we, we didn't have this opportunity. We didn't have chances like this. Yeah, well, that's why I consider myself so privileged and not at all, you know, in, in a position to sort of say, oh, this is the story. It's about me. It's not about me. It's actually about us, the, the U.S. and us. And and that's that, that's been my beat now for coming up on 50 years. Is there, a, is there a secret to be able to take, I mean, you, you know, starting the Civil War to baseball, Thomas Jefferson, Jack Johnson, Susan B. Anthony, Eleanor Roosevelt, you're bringing, it, it's not like it's, well, I'll do something people are already interested in. What is the key? What is the key besides storytelling in these characters, in these pastimes? I, I don't think so. I think it's just story. It's a good story, and a good story involves complication. It involves for us, years and years of research and being able to tolerate the contradictions and the undertow that attend everything. The tendency is to do a shortcut, to shave off the corners, to sugarcoat something, or to just leave it at a kind of superficial level. I've got a neon sign in my editing room that's uh, in cursive, lowercase cursive, and it says, it's complicated. There, I, you know, there's not a filmmaker that I know that, that has a hard time when a scene is working just opening that scene up and changing it as you learn new information. But over the course of the last nearly half century, we've learned a kind of bravery to not only do that, but to welcome it, uh, even at the sacrifice of how well that scene might be working, because people respond to something that reflects real life. If you get to see Muhammad Ali as a human being, as well as just his bold-faced name, you've got a better chance of relating to him and his story than you do if he's up on some pedestal or you're looking down at him because he's somehow uh, out of favor or cancelable or whatever it is you're used to. Um, there's no communication in this world except among equals, and that in and of itself is, a, to me, a stop the press's good kind of story. Well, well, Ken, you you are truly a national treasure. Every film you make is a gift to us as Americans, as humans, and this one's no exception. Muhammad Ali, a four-part, eight-hour look at the life of really one of the most fascinating people in our history. More information at pbs.org slash Ken Burns. How about that? Our thanks to the great and surprisingly inspiring Ken Burns. When we come back, an artist with a purpose. Amy Sweezy is going to tell us about one woman who stepped up to use her talents to inspire women in what she calls a wonderfully wacky way. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Remember when everyone used to retire at 65? Well, these days you can call it quits in your 50s or continue to work into your 70s and beyond. The point is there is no true retirement age anymore. So when should you? 
Well, it's a personal decision, but it's also a financial one. Sometimes at 65, we're just not ready. Maybe you haven't quite saved up enough yet. Remember, at 65, you could still have 20 or 30 more years of active life ahead of you. Now, last year, as a result of the pandemic, 4 million people retired, either by choice or through layoffs. The problem is many are not ready, emotionally or financially, for what could turn out to be a very long period in retirement. So what can you do? An annuity can help provide protected monthly income that you can count on, no matter what happens. The Alliance for Lifetime Income is a nonprofit educational organization that believes no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money late in life. At protectedincome.org, the Alliance provides easy-to-understand information, tools, guides, and stories of real-life Americans who found ways to protect their retirement, giving them the freedom to live a bold life. That's protectedincome.org. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. But when it comes down to it, the key to life is finding something you love and then finding a way to make it your lifestyle. Who said that to us, Mark? <laughs> I believe that was Roger McGuinn, though. And it, it holds true, doesn't it? If you're creative about how you do what you do and relentless in pursuit of it, it can happen for you just like it did for a woman named Susie Toronto. Yeah, all she really knew is that she loved making bright, colorful drawings that made people feel good, especially women, even those who were dealing with grief. And as she explained to our Amy Sweezy, it's what motivated her to create a unique line of greeting cards and and so much more called Wonderful Wacky Women. It was during a school drawing contest in second grade that Susie Toronto realized she had a skill that others did not. Her talent descended from her grandfather and mother, who were both artists, which guided Susie to selling her work at art shows. I was raised by a mother who taught me to believe in myself. And probably the greatest blessing I have is the fact that I was raised to believe I could do anything and that I could overcome anything and I could accomplish anything I wanted to. That belief led her and her husband to take out a home equity loan to self-publish Susie's first book. I was thrilled, excited, scared. You know, my heart was beating in my chest. And then a month later, when 5,000 books arrived in my garage and I went into sheer panic mode about how I was going to get rid of these and how I was going to pay off the the um, mortgage on the house with that. Susie knew she was onto something with her book, containing not only her artwork, but also poems and stories with positive messages, which she was convinced resonated with women. I knew that I could help women who were struggling. I knew that I could inspire women. I knew that I could console them. I knew that I could relate to them. And so that kept me moving forward and not getting discouraged because it didn't matter what anybody said to me. I believed in what I was doing. Remarkably, those first 5,000 books sold in just a matter of weeks. They paid off the loan and Susie vowed to never be in debt again. I was working seven days a week putting in 18-hour days. But it was important to me not to get in debt over my head. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want that stress on me. So it, it, it was a journey. It was a hard journey. But I believed in myself. I believed that, that this message needed to get out. 
Information about her books and cards can be found at SusieToronto.com. Boy, she found a way to use her talents to help others, just like Mark is doing for all of us as we age. I love it, Mark. My favorite part of the show, what is on your mind today? You know, what's on my mind, Bill, is I think something or someone who's been on everyone's mind recently, and um, and that's Betty White. You know, I've never was a big fan of the Golden Girls or the Mary Tyler Moore show, but I certainly was a fan of hers. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to be. And I think we all know that she passed away on New Year's Eve, just a few weeks shy of her 100th birthday. And, you know, based upon the outpouring of love, the respect that she had from people all over the country, I think she might have become the most beloved centenarian ever. And it's not because of her work as a producer or a performer. She won five primetime Emmys. She won 16 primetime Emmy nominations. She was honored for that. But it was because she was an example of joyous aging. She embodied the personality traits that you and I have seen when we talk to active centenarians. This was a woman who was game. She started on the stage. She moved to radio in the 1930s. In 1939, she was one of the first people on an experimental television station. And then throughout her career, it didn't make any difference. Talk shows, game shows, commercials, sitcoms. She would say yes to anything and everything, and she found a way to keep going. And she said, I don't believe in retirement. I'm never going to retire. Uh, and of course, if you're a laborer, if you're a blue collar worker, you got to find a way to, to throttle down as you get older. But this new world that we live in, retirement really is becoming a series of passion driven gigs. If you can figure out a way to pick up a project like she did, uh, you're better for it. And isn't she proof that you never have to get old? She had spark. She didn't seem the elderly type or the stereotypical frail 99-year-old Betty White was a true inspiration and really somebody that we could all get behind. It's a great point. Her sense of humor permeated everything. So many great quotes. Someone asked about exercise, what she did, and she said, Honey, I've got a two-story house and a bad memory. Wow. And, and you can just see her running up and down the steps trying to remember why she went up or down. Betty White, what a great topic for On My Mind. That's going to do it for us for now. We'll see you again next time on Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh